0: Be seated. When I was a little kid, I was a very picky eater. I remember for my whole first or second grade, I wanted to eat the same thing every single day peanut butter and jam sandwich. And not jelly, that's gross. My picky eating started way before that, though. My parents tried anything and everything to get me to eat my vegetables. And broccoli was the worst. There was nothing my mom could do to make me put those little trees in my mouth. (laughs) All right, fess up. How many people were picky eaters at one point in their life? All right, very good. Picky eaters unite. Uh, I eat everything now, but... Well, finally, mom takes me to the pediatrician. A doctor will resolve this major dinnertime confrontation. So she sits me down in this little room. and The doctor comes in and she says, he won't eat his vegetables. Isn't that going to like stunt his growth or make him sick, like scurvy or something? And uh, the doctor looked at me, looked at my my, uh, mom and said, it's not worth fighting for. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love that. He told me to eat fruit, no problem. And he told my mom to pick her battles carefully. As I grew up, I would hear my mom and dad deciding what battles were worth fighting for. And my whole family has been very grateful for that doctor's wise advice. Well, this summer, we're exploring the book of Galatians. And believe it or not, today's passage has picky eaters. And one of the best. Dinner time confrontations in the whole Bible. But this one is definitely worth fighting for. In fact, the problems in the Galatian church had Paul worried sick one minute and fighting mad the next. So as we go into the text, let's pray. Jesus, open our hearts to hear your word to us this morning. Amen. In the whole New Testament, this book is the most confrontational and has, and as Scott has said, it also has the most colorful language, but it is also the clearest explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul points to Jesus who showed everyone the heart of his father who says, I love you just as you are, not as you should be. Then he called people to follow him, to follow a new way centered in himself, in Jesus. And then he died for them. Because of Jesus' victory in the cross and resurrection, we don't have to earn or prove anything. Paul says we are loved and accepted unconditionally by God. In this series, Scott's talked about the salvation equation. Salvation equals Christ plus nothing all who put their faith in Christ are saved, period. That's grace, and it brings freedom. Well, Paul keeps emphasizing grace because it's so opposite to the messages that we receive in our culture. We're told you have to perform, achieve, earn your own way, and then maybe others will accept you, respect you, love you. And those messages of ungrace that we hear every day are the same ones Paul was attacking in the Galatian church. In fact, Paul had been defending grace ever since he first tasted it himself. So Paul recounts one of his best war stories. It happened early on in the great city of Antioch. It pitted apostle versus apostle, and we might call it the gospel smackdown. Here's the scene. There are three groups of Christians in this story. The first group are the Jewish Christians. I call these people the lifers, believers who don't remember ever not being religious. They spent their whole lives in the faith community, which has shaped their attitudes and their behavior. Peter and Paul were lifers. I'm a lifer. I grew up in the church. The second group are the Gentile Christians. Let's call them the newcomers. They spent the formative years of their lives out in the surrounding culture with its lifestyle and values, coming into the church as an adult. They weren't raised in it. Scott Dudley would be an example of a newcomer. He's been around the church a while now, but he made an adult decision to follow Jesus. The church needs both lifers and newcomers to be healthy, and our church has both. All right, so let's see it. How many lifers do we have in the house? Okay, how many newcomers have we got? Very good. See, healthy church. Good. So the lifers and the newcomers are getting along just fine in Antioch, which is a bit of a miracle. Jewish and Gentile believers loving one another and even eating together. Feels like the kingdom of God has arrived right there in Antioch. Paul and Peter and the other lifers are trying Gentile foods, The newcomers are eating matzah, and everyone's enjoying a great church potluck. This is very new, and it's full of joy. But then some brothers arrive from Jerusalem, and the plot thickens. This third group are Jewish Christians, but these guys take a hard line on the Jewish law. Most of the Jewish Christians were experiencing freedom from the Jewish food laws, but this third group... Uh, This third group thinks that following Jesus means becoming a Jewish follower of Jesus, including not fraternizing with those Gentiles and certainly not eating with them. They were the original picky eaters. So we've got three groups, right? The, The lifers, the newcomers, and I'll call the third group the legalists. And we won't raise hands on that one. So the legalists walk through the door just as Peter is sinking his teeth into his first pork chop, and they are horrified. Peter drops everything, jumps up and welcomes them. Another table is set up for these old friends, and Peter joins them. After all, he's now a big shot in the Jerusalem church. But Peter never goes back and sits or eats with the Gentile Christians. And pretty soon, all the Jewish Christians have abandoned the Gentile Christians, and the whole church is split in two. Right then, Paul stands up in the middle of the church and calls Peter a hypocrite. He says, Peter, one minute, you're saying that we're all one in Christ, and it's good for us Jewish believers to eat with Gentile believers. And then you turn around, and it's not okay to eat with them. In fact, maybe they should follow the whole law. Right at the height of this drama, Paul cuts the scene and leaves us in a cliffhanger. Paul aims his knockout line at Peter, and what happens next? Paul doesn't tell. But what I find even more interesting is that Paul doesn't mention what happened to Peter just before this scene. To understand what happens here and what happens next, we have to flash back. So sorry if this feels like an episode of lost, but, uh, this was one of the most important conflicts in the whole early church. And so we, we need a little bit more of the story to understand what's going on and why it's so important to us. So after Jesus' res- uh, resurrection, he promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on all of Jesus' disciples. And they began to praise God in various languages. This was wild. And brand new. Peter preached and thousands of Jews put their faith in Jesus and were baptized as followers of Christ. The church was born in the heart of Jerusalem. And the people were filled with joy and great gratitude. Right after Pentecost, God shows Peter a vision. God presents Peter with all the animals that were unclean according to Jewish law. And he tells him to eat. Now, Peter, a good Jew, refuses to eat anything unclean. And God concludes the vision by saying, what I have made, no, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. And God shows him this vision three times so Peter wouldn't miss it. This is Peter, right? Three times Peter. So three times God says, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. And right then there's a knock on the door, and God says, "Go with these guys." So Peter goes and discovers Cornelius, a Gentile, is inviting Peter, a Jew, into his home to hear about Jesus. Well, Peter goes in and gives them and, and tells them that everyone who believes in Jesus is forgiven and accepted by God while Peter is still speaking. The Holy Spirit comes down on everyone in the household and we have a mini Pentecost. Praising God, intense joy, speaking in different languages, the whole works. Except this time, it's with all Gentiles. Everyone is astounded that the Holy Spirit was given even to Gentiles. So Peter baptizes them in the name of Jesus. Same message of faith in Christ, same Holy Spirit... Same baptism, without distinction, for Jewish and Gentile believers. Well, Peter heads back to Jerusalem and gets grilled there by the legalists. But it's pretty hard to argue when Pentecost just fell on your head. So everyone, most everyone, praises God. But the scriptures say the legalists were silenced, but not for long. Well, Peter goes to see this huge multi-ethnic church that Paul's got going on up in Antioch. And the legalists take off after him, determined to do better than they did in their first round in Jerusalem. Well, end of flashback, and we return to the scene of Paul leveling his charge of hypocrite against Peter. Here's Paul fighting to protect this fledgling church that's trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in unity, despite their many differences. Paul realizes this is worth fighting for. This isn't about picky eaters. The Holy Spirit is creating a brand new community, and it's worth fighting for. Legalism is a double threat and must be resisted in Jerusalem and then in Antioch, and now those legalists have shown up again in Galatia. So what exactly is the threat? First, legalism denies the gospel of grace. Legalism adds to the salvation equation. Instead of Jesus plus nothing, legalism says salvation equals Jesus plus food laws and circumcision or the whole Jewish legal system. Instead of saying follow Jesus, period, legalism says follow Jesus and follow our rules. If you do, then you're okay. That's why legalism tears the heart out of the gospel. We don't earn God's acceptance. It's a free gift of God's love, thanks to Jesus. Maybe your relationships, maybe your relationship with Jesus has been warped by legalistic Christians. This threat is alive and well for us today just as it was for the first Christians. I've heard from lots of people that even though now they believe in the true gospel, the repeating tapes of ungrace that they've heard continue to plague them. Maybe you've heard those voices. You're not good enough. You don't fit in with real Christians. You need to stop doing this or start doing that. Then maybe you could make the cut. Try harder. Do better. The voice of the accuser can go deep. And over time, we can develop patterns of ungrace. Maybe you're constantly self-critical. Or you second-guess yourself all the time, unable to feel okay about the decisions that you make. Do you ever feel yourself trying to be good enough for God to love you? If I don't fundamentally believe that God loves me, then I am not okay. I am not secure and I become filled with fear and anxiety and the need to please others. The Bible says Peter gave in to this fear and his need to be accepted by these legalists. The first threat of legalism is that it denies the gospel of grace. It denies the true relationship between me and God. The second threat of legalism is that it denies the unity of Christ's body. It denies the true relationship we have with one another. The early Christians experienced the same love from God, the same faith in Jesus, the same reception of the Holy Spirit, the same baptism in water. They were one in Christ, and they began to see that there really was no Jew or Gentile male or female, slave or free, in God's eyes. We are all equally adopted as God's children. There are no second-class kids. But in this situation, Peter abandons his Gentile brothers and sisters. Have you ever abandoned someone because they didn't meet your expectations? Someone hurt you or messed up somehow and you cut them off? They were so maybe they were so different from you that you just withdrew and left them to their themselves. After all, they probably enjoy their own kind better anyway. That is a lie of the devil, and it flies in the face of everything Jesus stands for: love, grace, unity, forgiveness. Paul sees that legalism denies the gospel and can destroy a church, and that's worth fighting for. So Paul fights against legalism and for the truth of the gospel and the unity in the church. So how do we fight against legalism in us and around us? Well, Paul could give us five things to do, uh, but he's too smart for that. We would just turn them into another form of legalism. We'd put them on our checklist and check them off so we could feel good about ourselves, or we'd feel the despair when we weren't able to do them all. So instead, Paul does something different. He points us to Jesus. In verse 20, Paul continues, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, live by faith in Jesus. That's the goal for Christians. It's also the antidote to legalism. Don't rely on rules or the approval of others. Instead, live by faith. Experience the freedom that comes with God's love and God's grace. Freedom to be the the person that God has created you to be, not what somebody else wants you to be. Freedom to trust in God's love without needing to achieve to be accepted. Freedom to rest in God's peace without stressing out all the time. Freedom to resist saying yes when you really need to say no. Living by faith really starts after you become a Christian. We put our faith in Jesus and God saves us. Jesus plus nothing. But we learn to live by faith. It takes time and lots of practice. Living by faith is not natural. It's supernatural to learn to cooperate with God's spirit within us. We learn over time to die to the old self, which can still tell us lies and hold us captive. We learn over time to be guided by the Holy Spirit as we pray and read scripture. We learn over time to love one another as we bump up against each other and our differences in community. We learn to live by faith, and no one else can do that for us. Well, how do we learn? It's familiar to us. I recommend the show me prayer. Simply ask God to show you how to live by faith in your daily life. You see, living by faith looks different for people because God puts different people in different circumstances so that we can learn over time what living by faith looks like for us, and not according to a bunch of rules, one size fits all. I am so grateful that First Press is not a legalistic church. Legalism says the ways that we have followed God in the past must be the ways that we follow God in the future same ways. I've never heard that here. Legalism wrecks people's lives, and there are a lot of people in our church who are healing from that. But God has blessed us with a lot of people, a church full of people who are passionately trying to follow Jesus. Many are praying the show me prayer to see how the Holy Spirit is inviting us to be God's people here for such a time as this. Sometimes the Holy Spirit guides us back to the tried and true, like prayer and worship and Bible study. And sometimes God leads us forward to something new, at least new for us. And Paul says that's what living by faith is, cooperating with the Spirit of God within us who leads us forward. Paul concludes this passage by warning against abandoning the grace of God. You can't go back to the old ways to our familiar bondages, or Christ would have died in vain. The only way forward is learning to live by faith in the one who loves us and frees us. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to live by faith. Help us resist the bondage of legalism and show us how to live by faith in our daily lives, and to share your unconditional love with one another. We pray in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.